This episode of The Vast Majority is brought to you by the International Studies Program at DePaul University. Earn your Master's in International Studies at DePaul, where you'll develop a worldly perspective with a lens on global inequality. This academically rigorous program is grounded in critical theory and uniquely focuses on themes of power and global systems. The DePaul International Studies program is dedicated to building a community of scholars and researchers who demonstrate a commitment to questioning power and politics in a way that bridges theory and practice. To learn more, visit their website at bit.ly slash DePaulINT. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash D-E-P-A-U-L-I-N-T. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of The Vast Majority. I'm Jackman Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht. Today, I am joined for a kind of a book club, I guess, uh, although you do not have to have read the book in question in order to get something out of the episode. Uh, I'm joined by Chapo Trap House's Matt Chrisman to discuss the book Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980 by Rick Perlstein. And this book is the fourth installment of a four-part book series by Perlstein that began uh, with his book Before the Storm uh, about Barry Goldwater and uh, the origins of the New Right. Uh, his most famous book probably came out after that, Nixon Land, uh, and then The Invisible Bridge a few years ago, and this book is number four. And, uh, you know, Matt and I talk about the book Reagan Land, and I would uh, highly recommend listeners get copies of any and or all of uh, his four books uh, because they are indispensable reading for understanding the current political cultural moment that we're in. But you do not have to have read any of the books, I think, to get uh, something out of the conversation uh, that we have. Uh, And also, it is a bit of a heavy lift. I'm like picking up the book right now. I don't know if you can hear it. It's like a 1100 pages long it's uh it's a it's definitely a a brick of a book as are all four of his books uh but take it from me and matt chrisman all four of the books are definitely worth it so here's our conversation about uh rick perlstein's reaganland and the culture and politics of the late 1970s as well as our current era matt hello hi so we're here, uh, kind of like two-person book club we're doing today uh, with this book, Reagan Land, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980 by Rick Perlstein. And Perlstein is a liberal, occasionally social democratic-ish uh, historian, and this is the fourth book in his series on the emergence of the new right that goes from the uh, Barry Goldwater campaign in 1964 to Ronald Reagan winning the presidency in 1980. Uh, you and I both have read all four of these massive books that Pearlstein has written. Can you just start with, like, what, why read this guy, Pearlstein? What, what to you is distinctive about him and makes him worthwhile slogging through these, like, thousand-page books? I think it's his approach to politics as a uh, culture and as an expression of culture that I find uh, most interesting because he is fixed on the political project of the new right, uh, sort of detached from like economic uh, structures until this last book when he finally starts talking about political economy, but as, as a project of you know like-minded people uh, and it's all about the way that uh, 
changes in culture were recognized by these figures who then were able to channel those those new currents uh, towards a right-wing political agenda. And in a time when it seems like uh, culture has completely de- uh, absorbed and consumed politics, that seeing how this process really began is uh, is crucial to understanding the current time. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it seems like it's a kind of chicken or the egg question because on the one hand, you're like, are is the new right that is emerging in the period in this book from the late 70s recognizing that there is a shift in culture and politics and seizing on it, or are they themselves creating this new, you know, culture war as central to their entire project? I think the quote that comes up a bunch in the book is that uh, the new right sees themselves as uh, organizing discontent, uh, but also like creating discontent out of whole cloth. I mean, like the kind of culture war items that are pretty much standard fare, certainly for the right at this point in time, uh, come up a ton during the book. But to me, there's a question of whether or not the new right forces themselves have created these battles uh, themselves out of whole cloth and then and then made political hay out of it. I don't think that's a question where you have to answer one or the other. I think it's it is a cycle. Uh, you have you have changes in America's uh, economics and structures of of social order, creating this discontent, this sense of uh, this sense of uh, unease and an unmoredness among this class of people. Then you have this political class who's able to uh, articulate that discontent, and then by virtue of articulating it, they get the attention and they get buy-in from this these people, which means that when they want to bring something up, they're going to have their uh, their ear. So they they get to uh, through canny observation of the moment create a position where they get to channel and then also generate discontent for people to organize around part of what's so fascinating about reagan land and the, and the period that it depicts and then also his previous book the invisible bridge that covers the couple of years before 1976 is that in this era in the united states it's it's a unique era in certainly in recent history certainly in post-war american history right in which the united states is is just a couple of years out from losing the war in Vietnam and losing that war combined with the sort of domestic imperial state overreach. You know, there's the church committee uh, that's documented in Pearlstein's previous book, you know, the overreaches of the CIA and the FBI. I mean, really like ghastly stuff that Americans are learning for the first time about what uh, the American security state was up to at home and abroad and that plus the U.S.'s military defeat, the, you know, the, the number one military superpower in the world gets defeated by a, a army of uh, peasants in a poor third world country. Uh, all, all of these things are, are, you know, they're combining plus the, the, the end of the 60s and the upsurges of the 60s. There's like this moment where we could have had a real reckoning with the American project as a whole. And, and sometimes in this book, as well as in his previous book, you see that playing out in culture, in politics. Um, and you certainly see that in this book in the rise of Jimmy Carter to become president in 1976 from 1977. And 
there's there's some appetite for that in America in a way that feels really foreign to me now. Like even now at a time of, you know, America just having basically come to grips with the fact that we've lost the war in Afghanistan, for example, it's gone gone on for two decades. Or, you know, we, we recognize that America has not, the American economy has not provided a decent standard of living for uh, for young people, especially, but for people across the board with expanding inequality. I mean, we, we have similar conditions of like imperial overreach and an inability to deliver the goods domestically, but it doesn't feel like we're in that same period of, of like deep existential reckoning that you get a sense of in this book. And I think that's because of, uh, for large part, because of what happened after that. That uh, reckoning was never had because uh, there was no power on the, in the land that uh, was organized around seeing it. Uh, instead, all of the the most uh, influential uh, powers in the United States, including the upper uh, echelons of the labor movement by that point, were more interested in uh, moving on and providing the most uh, limited uh, of hangouts, as it were, to allow for people to uh, buy back into the American project. And then uh, uh, almost as, as at the exact same moment that's happening, uh, the U.S. economy is being uh, fundamentally reorganized. The role of uh, working people and their representatives in the labor movement to shape economic policy is being permanently uh, removed uh, and, a, and a new order uh, uh, premised on, as Paul Volcker said, the, de- the decline of the American standard of living without it ever being uh, put to a vote in any way. Uh, it's the, the result of that is we now live in a country uh, where the aperture of the political is so much smaller, even though we are so much more uh, culturally politicized. That's in large part because there is such little... Uh, space for real challenge to anything that makes up the the the, the fabric of our uh, of our reality like the, we've we've had the war in Afghanistan going on for 20 years a complete debacle and a disaster but it's happened largely uh, automatically because of our the relatively small footprint of our all-volunteer military as opposed to a huge deployment of, of hundreds of thousands of conscripted American soldiers, which was the case during Vietnam. And technology and, uh, and the, the absolute dominance of, of uh, atomizing spectacle and the complete removal of meaningful questions of empire uh, and economics from the political debate means there's no there's nothing to be disillusioned about the, the, these things are uh, I think metastasized and processed by people more as uh, sort of features of nature than the designs of uh, a political regime that could hi- hypothetically be overturned yeah and to go back to the, the the period in question in this book I mean part of the reason for the constricted range of options political options for americans during this you know once once in a generation uh period of of existential reckoning uh with the american project is the fact that like when there there is this appetite that exists out there but the the standard bearer for it who emerges 
is Jimmy Carter, which we can talk about in, in depth mm-hmm. about what he was up to when he was uh, president of the U.S. Um, but it was also, as you mentioned, the labor movement was highly constricted in its view. I mean, we're coming out of this period in which much of the uh, leadership in the American labor movement is uh, gung ho for the war in Vietnam, are you know very happy to be uh, partners with the American imperial project in in supporting you know its cold war aims and projecting u.s supremacy around the world and smashing out any kind of like substantive class politics and radicalism and uh, of course we're stuck you know the the constant theme that always comes up in any assessment of american history is that you're stuck with this fucking party the democrats it's not a labor party uh and it's not really rooted in like a, a any kind of substantive class politics there are occasionally decent things that they do on that front for organized labor but that's almost almost a coincidence it really has to be like dragged out of them and that's certainly the case uh from 76 to 80 where where carter is uh very far from a champion uh, for the American labor movement, um, where even with you have these like right wing labor bureaucrats, the, even they are not happy with what Carter is uh, delivering from them. So uh, you, you you don't have uh, you know politics. You know, of course, we just came out of the '60s with all of these civil rights movement upsurges and and student radicals, etc. Um, but there's no left wing party in the country. And uh, we get stuck with somebody like Carter, who, if you read this book uh, and, and sort of take stock of what Carter did during his one term as president, the substantive nature of, of what he was doing, I mean, it's like indistinguishable from a lot of like, you know, Mitt Romney type Republicans, right? Like it's not, you know, foaming at the mouth reactionary politics, but in terms of the economic substance of what he's doing, it's basically the introduction of neoliberalism. Yeah. Because uh, by that point, there was no articulated opposition to everything that everybody hated uh, that had actual radical uh, uh, critique within it and, and could have harnessed a, an actual political uh, uh, coalition to pursue its aims. I mean, uh, everybody who did have that was uh, killed <laughs> over the course of the 60s. So sort of the only people left standing were people like uh, Jimmy Carter who were able to uh, take the language of of religious sort of virtue uh, and weld that to a. Uh, at, I honestly don't even know if if Carter had any real vision for his presidency beyond the fact that his him being president would be some sort of redeeming feature to the country. In that respect, he is very similar to Barack Obama. I think uh, he, he saw just the fact that he could preside over. A nation broken and and questioning itself uh, as a form of redemption for the country, and then once he gets in power and the uh, he gets the Ned Beatty speech about what's actually happening, uh, he carries on with a neoliberal austerity project to break the back of labor, while also trying to deal with the. Uh, the cultural breakdown caused by the the very rapid decline in uh in labor power and purchasing power that happened in the early to mid 70s uh like a huge wave of social disruption at the economic level uh that was leading to uh, what looked to a lot of people like a, a total social breakdown and an explosion of anime uh and his response was to tell people to 
uh, find virtue in uh, austerity and to find virtue in self-denial without, of course, uh, changing any of the mechanisms uh, or addressing any of the mechanisms of consumption that were that are and remain remain the only real uh, drivers of the American economy now. This was the thing that was maybe the most shocking piece of this book. I mean, I knew that Carter had instituted a lot of the beginnings of the policies that we now associate with neoliberalism, but I didn't realize the extent to which, like, to the extent that, that Carter had a coherent project, like that, that neoliberalism was absolutely central to it, right? Like the kind of rebirth and regeneration in America that he thinks needs to happen in the wake of the 60s and in Vietnam is, is entirely a kind of like finger wagging at the American people. Like you're consuming too much. You want too much. Uh, you think that you should be able to like live without limits, but I'm here to tell you, I'm the adult in the in the country. I'm gonna have the 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 sort of uh, the fortitude, the the courage to tell you that you're living too high on the hog and that you're gonna need to cut back. And and so much of his his domestic rhetoric is just focused on trying to convince the American people that they have it yeah. too good, and he, you know they're eating too much candy or whatever, and he is gonna be the one who's gonna pull the candy away from them, which is shocking. I mean. Carlson keeps using this uh, phrase from from some uh, political of the time where he talks about uh, you don't shoot Santa, right? Like Santa brings you the gifts. And so a basic rule of politics is never shoot Santa because he's bringing people gifts. And Carter is just constantly shooting Santa. And, uh, you know, the, the, the whether or not that is the correct thing to do aside, I think it's not. But like why wasn't it so obvious to him that he would be punished for doing so? And that in fact, in, in taking that approach to American domestic politics, of course, that's going to produce a grotesque figure like Reagan. Of course, he's going to be able to ride in and say like, Jimmy Carter doesn't want you to like live a decent life. Jimmy Carter doesn't believe in like the American dream. He thinks that you're living too high on the hog. Well, guess what? I don't think that. And I'm going to restore you to your rightful place as you know, America's going to be kings of the world again. And you're going to be able to live high on the hog with consume as much as you want. And you know, here, here, have your candy back. Uh, yeah, and it, it, the only way that it makes sense at all is when you just take into consideration how thoroughly propagandized the uh, uh, people like Jimmy Carter were by by the culture of the 60s and early 70s by that point to seeing politics as a contest of virtue to have seen the the to have seen the uh, bread and butter of politics uh, at the level of uh, like the the political class, people who read and write about politics and, and the people that guys like Carter spend all their time around and people who make up his uh, his cotier of advisors, uh, they saw the 60s as this revolution, the creation of a new politics, they called it, where people didn't care about tawdry economic concerns. They cared about higher questions. And in a world where you believe that, I can you can imagine uh, that telling the truth to people would have some sort of uh, electoral uh, power, especially since Carter won uh, by uh, presenting this fig- himself as a figure of sanctimony who is going to restore America's virtue uh, through his own embodiment of it. And that was what got them to the dance. So they had to keep doing it really and that they at that point there was no one who was going to 
intercede because these areas they get completely suffocatingly self-contained and there's no light getting in there's no air getting in one of the things Perlstein does best in these books is talks about the way that liberal cultural the liberal cultural conversation had in the pages of the New York Times and the elite opinion papers and among the actual political uh, elite and the people who who paid attention to politics uh, was consumed by this idea that politics was about virtue. Of course, the reason that the people say who uh, people were saying this was because the people saying this are the people who had were most uh, in their own minds anyway protected from any kind of real economic uh, precarity. They're they're the most stable, secure, ruling uh, cultural elite you could imagine in in, in material terms. And so uh, watching all of the, the fights in the streets over questions of civil rights and the war in Iraq, or sorry, the war in Vietnam, uh, they could tell themselves that, okay, now what matters is, uh, is virtue. Now it, what matters is authenticity because uh, they weren't in contact with anybody who was feeling any kind of economic pinch about the economy. Uh, certainly after things start, the wheels started coming off of the thing during, under Nixon. And so when Carter starts his pitch to make people more virtuous, uh, it's kind of a shock when people are willing to listen to this ridiculous buffoonish act, act, actor telling you, no, actually, uh, these guys, uh, these guys don't have your best interest at heart. The government wants you to be unhappy. We can unleash the American, uh, economy and allow you to uh reach unknown unknown heights of uh of success and consumption uh and if you think that politics is virtue you think well people are going to see through that or be horrified by that or find it to be uh in some way distasteful uh but uh no turns out not everybody goes to pauline kale's cocktail parties and what's what's heartbreaking about that is just that you do have the sense that there was room for a different different kind of politics in that era. I mean, whether or not you know Ronald Reagan would have would have won in 1980 if there was a more substantive left wing uh, you know politics on offer, it's hard to know. I mean, part of what the the story this book tells is about Ted Kennedy kind of representing a version of that politics, although for various reasons he was not the best uh, standard bearer for that. Yeah, he was the copy of the copy. He was he was completely he was he showed how exhausted it was because it it was like that whole vision had been depleted by it had been defeated by victory, and it required a refreshing a a new uh, a new resurgence or uh, and uh to redefine it and to make it vital in the moment and that didn't happen because the necessary social ingredients for it were breaking apart rather than coming together well and and so as i was saying that there's there does feel like there might have been a, an opportunity for something more substantive if if several things had lined up the right way, right? I mean, if those social ingredients had not been 
splintering apart if they had able to, been able to cohere around something. Certainly, if we would have had uh, someone who a, a candidate in a, in a true left winger workers party who would have represented a more substantive working class politics, that uh, it, it would have at least been nice to uh, to try out the alternative, like a real left wing politics in this period. Um, but of course, that's not what we got. We got uh, Jimmy Carter and. Um, and so it feels like that opportunity, that opening in American politics uh, was wasted by this guy, Jimmy Carter, and his like hair shirt austerity mindset. Much like the opportunity existed after the collapse of the economy in 2008 for an alternative model to be expressed. But we didn't get that. We got uh, the O'Bungler. Exactly. And then what did we get after the O'Bungler? We got the most grotesque, you know, right wing yeah. <laughs> buffoon that we can imagine. The TV guy, some... just like Reagan. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so that yeah, the 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 similarities are really uh, incredibly striking, I guess, by the two eras, which is part of uh, Pearlstein's uh, specialty. I mean, that's I guess part of the reason why he he writes all of these books. Um, so the the other thing that, as we already mentioned, that comes out of this uh, new period in American politics is this emergence of the new right, this, uh, you know, weaving together a strand of disparate elements from conservative politics who would not organically have anything to do with each other. The, you know, members of fundamentalist Christian, mostly Protestant, but not entirely Protestant churches with you know, free market zealots of the Milton Friedman type and what Pearlstein calls the boardroom Jacobins, these sort of newly uh, politicized or at least uh, businessmen at the top echelons of corporate America who have a new appetite for waging war on the labor movement and, and getting their, uh, their, their desired policies passed in office. Um, so this new right starts to come together through some, uh, you know, there's, there's several people like the fundamentalist pastor, Jerry Falwell, and also, uh, Paul Wayreich, Wayrich, I don't know how you pronounce his name, um, who's like this direct male king, uh, who, who plays this key role. And, and this coalition, uh, comes together that, um, it, I mean, ends up playing this massive role in American politics for, decades to come uh, including up to uh today like the, it's it's this new right the whole reason that Pearlstein is telling this story is because the new right ends up being uh hegemonic and you know i get the sense that Pearlstein wants to tell this story because he sees something to learn from this coalition not in the sense obviously of these abhorrent policies that they're pushing and in this book there's you know, in-depth discussion of their horrific homophobic policies. I mean, they really spin a lot of gold uh, from, you know, mining homophobic, uh, you know, campaigns against gay marriage in different places and, you know, uh, waging campaigns against CBS for depicting, you know, homosexual couples on TV. Um, and they're, they're, they're just getting, they're, 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 they emerge and they become dominant in American politics. And it's my sense that, even though Pearlstein, Pearlstein is a progressive, he's a liberal, uh, but he sees something for the broad left to learn from how successful this new right coalition was. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, I think that I think that he does want you to learn something. Uh, a lot of people take it as a like a blueprint 
like uh, on the left like okay this is what the left has to to do but i really i don't think that i don't necessarily think that's what he uh thinks it, it's useful for and i i don't think that's what it's useful for either just because of the way that mo- the role that money plays in this uh process is something that cannot be is not repeatable for the left it, it is an it is a huge and important and all pervasive element that is just lacking in the current left it, and, and it can't like there is there cannot be any money to fill in for the role that the organized corporate money plays in this movement uh and so i think the thing that you can learn from it is uh, the role of culture as a expression of dynamics that cannot be spoken of uh, in other language because of the foreclosure of the left as an alternative. Like the story that uh, uh, Prostein starts a story after World War II in the 50s with guys like Clarence Mannion and uh, and the Robert Welch or the John Wel- John. Birch Society. Uh, this is the moment where the New Deal liberalism has basically triumphed over uh, the socialist movement that it had sort of co-opted and then uh, utilized over the course of the the Depression and World War II. Uh, and in the in the co- in the post-war moment, uh, no longer needed. And after the purging of communists from the CIO and, and the second red scare uh, destroying the infrastructure of organized, the organized left within uh, the establishment structures. Uh, you now have a situation in the fifties where there is no alternative to uh, either this uh, managed Keynesianism uh, of the Democrats and the, 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 and the Republicans at that point, And then a, uh, reactionary uh, counteroffensive by capital uh, and a counteroffensive at the level of culture by those who are who have their traditional uh, modes of hierarchy disrupted by that progressive move within the uh, Democratic uh, Party. And without that option, uh, the 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 liberal hegemony uh, is essentially uh doomed because it will be unable to respond to any critique from the right realistically because all it will be able to do is to uh promise to double down on that which is already breaking down and that is the, like uh this by the time they get to 1980 Ted Kennedy's attempt to bring back the new deal tradition is completely exhausted because everyone believes that 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 vision is why everything is bad now. Everyone is everyone has decided that it was liberalism that failed, uh, and that's because the money to provide it, frankly, ran out. the 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 uh, the ability to buy off the working class uh, no longer existed as the global uh, economic order uh, equalized geographically. And what that meant was that the left, the liberal left, was without a response. And that's why by the end of the decade, you're left with Carter telling people to put sweaters on and even uh, Teddy Kennedy only really able to gesture towards uh, a, 
policies that uh, were already discredited by the majority of voters by that point. So then let's do a thought experiment, I guess, because I agree with what you're saying that the, the, the project of the sort of New Deal liberalism, I mean, Carter himself was like ready to jettison a lot of New Deal liberalism. Kennedy was at least trying to uh, strike up the old feeling uh, of that, uh, you know, try to bring back some of those aspects of New Deal liberalism. Both of them failed. Um, they are up against this newly coalescing new right that is waging so much of its battles on the on the terrain of culture and this kind of sense of discontent that people have. I mean, what is the w- w- imagine an alternative? Paint, paint a picture for us, Matt. Uh, what 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 would have been needed to overcome that kind of uh, exhaustion in a way that uh, would have been you know preferable to what Carter and Kennedy had on offer, and then also would have been able to go toe to toe with this new right and with Ronald Reagan. I think it would have been what died in the '60s, the, the, what died with uh, Martin Luther King, uh, what died with the the hope of a multiracial. Uh, uh, socialist political uh, mobilization that that was the only thing that could have articulated a, a uh, meaningful challenge to the new right and that would have required a politics not of more redistribution which is all the the, the uh, liberals could offer but uh, of, of uh, income or or resources a redistribution of power it would have had to talk it would have had to have been of uh, organized around actually seizing capital assets from capital as part of this uh this poor people's campaign uh like like martin luther king was trying to uh to organize at the time of his death that 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 was there is no reason to assume it would have won i think people who say that like for example bobby kennedy was a shoe in in 1968 or, or, or even that a Kennedy administration would have been the ch- the thing that people hope it would be. I think Pearlstein is very uh, uh, cynical about the uh, Bobby Kennedy campaign in 1968 in uh, Nixonland, which I think is, explains sort of uh, his antipathy for uh, Bernie, honestly, because I feel like he sees Bernie as sort of another Bobby Kennedy, kind of a feckless figure promising things that he can't deliver uh, and doesn't even intend to. Uh, I don't think that's fair, but I think that might be what he sees there. Uh, but anyway, uh, by the mid seventies, that, that spark had guttered out, uh, and politics was in this moment of crisis going to organize around, not questions of economic, uh, power, which was what was being proposed and, 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 uh, where, Resistance was being organized in the 60s in some places uh, to merely a question of cultural category. Uh, and that's where politics has been ever since, as the conditions have only deteriorated. Then they've only accelerated, politics has only accelerated into its, uh, into its cultural uh, combat, which is why you see such uh, deep political passions at a time when the bipartisan consensus on all the most important questions is completely unchallenged. Yeah, you're bringing up King. I agree with what you're saying that uh, that King represented the kind of 
especially in his later years, obviously the, the, the bringing together of like a multiracial working class movement to pose really fundamental questions about uh, the American order. And he did so in a way that still spoke to those same kinds of like uh, th- th- this need for the for a deep existential reckoning with with the American project because like you know when we, when you read in in Reaganland about uh, Carter wrestling with this you kind of are rolling your eyes he's like it's like he's almost cynically I mean I, I think his his religious beliefs were genuine it's clearly something that was very central to who he was as a person um, but he's just doing this sort of like uh this existential sort of song and dance about to, to, to justify what we know was bullshit which was these uh, austerity policies which was the beginning of neoliberalism king was calling for a similar kind of like moral regeneration and 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 more you know a fearless moral self-inventory as they say in aa <laughs> of what it meant to be an american and, and what the american project meant but he he didn't you know king was never counseling these kinds of early neoliberal policies to do that. It was, we need to reshape the the society uh, in such a way that we can wrest power away from capital and we can uh, redistribute power and wealth uh, to the working class of America. Uh, and you know, his assassination really represented the, 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 the strangling of that early project in its infancy. And instead, we got stuck with Jimmy Carter, right? Yeah, exactly, because... Only the the King formulation of politics had an answer to people who were genuinely feeling like they were going to lose out in cultural change, because that was a large percentage of large percentage of Americans. And yes, like they were racist. I mean, if we want to talk about how racist uh, racism is a defining feature of American politics now, holy shit, it sure as hell was in the late sixties, early seventies. Uh, and but you still needed people who had these beliefs and who also believed in uh, you know things like uh, gender hierarchy as well. Uh, you have to you had to deal with this wide constituents of people who were so used to they were so used to the comforts of middle class post war life that they didn't think of themselves really as political uh, uh, subjects anymore. They thought or as uh, economic subjects anymore. They felt like they were they had reached the American perspective of being like an owner operator because they owned a house or something like they 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 did not vote necessarily uh, or have political instincts organized around class. They were more focused on uh, on economics. And as sort of the night, the noose tightens on people in the in the 70s, as political as uh, cultural change accelerates and as economic uh, pain increases uh, the King formula was the only one that provided a alternative to continued the ec- the economic pain that was at the root of it. Every, every all, all other politics is addressing the the cultural uh, uh, firmament that uh, people flee to as their lives get more uh, denuded. Uh, and in that world, you can't win, but uh, you could win a substantial and uh, maybe critical number of people over, perhaps to a uh, critique of the system itself that could awaken perhaps and reestablish those sort of dormant class uh, consciousnesses. Right. And as you're saying that, I mean, I, I, I read Reagan land and I'm like feeling pretty down about like what are, what, what the possibilities were 
uh, for overcoming this this you know the, our 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 sliding our slide into Reaganland right like our slide into the uh, the politics that are that have been dominated by uh, Reaganism for for the past several decades. But then when you bring up MLK, I'm like, oh yeah, of course, like that was what the alternative was, and uh, I don't think it is too much of an overstatement to say that like in our own time that is what the bernie project represented in that same way it was like at a time when it felt like there's just a, a, such a, a a suffocating stranglehold on our politics and no opportunity for any kind of real left-wing working class politics to 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 emerge and instead we're stuck with figures like barack obama uh, and and his own sort of technocratic neoliberalism then out of nowhere this this bernie campaign emerges and uh shows that actually no there are, there is a real hunger for this kind of political alternative uh that is out there and we and we don't have to uh, completely despair i mean there's plenty of plenty of reasons for a, a healthy dose of despair but like that emergence shows that there is a, there is still, despite everything that we know about the uh, all of the avenues for political change that are closed in American society and the, the domination of uh, this this right wing coalition and, and corporate power in our politics, there's still uh, a hunger out there for some kind of political alternative. There is, but the the real the sobering element that must be remembered is that. What the Bernie campaign, I think, sh- showed pretty conclusively is that it's uh, that hunger is insufficient, absence a real change in the political consciousness and uh, and uh, self conception of non voters and politically unengaged people in this country, because those are the people who would have ne- needed to have been uh, activated to much greater degree than they were uh, to have neutralized the. Uh, the democratic party in that primary i mean obviously there was a lot of collusion that went on shenanigans uh they they rigged it as much as they could and the media was in the bag for uh the establishment and against bernie but uh that was always going to be the case that was baked into the challenge the the question was always going to be you do other things that uh counteract that and i honestly think that the idea that by itself uh, a a populist appeal in the political register to people who are already political consumers uh, is insufficient because we saw the failure the failure of it to get people who don't normally vote enough of them to to uh, involve themselves in this process and absent that I don't think there was any ever hope because the majority of people who vote in this country are dedicated to one or another of these uh, dueling sort of shadow uh, uh, culture wars and and who view politics through this identity prism uh, of, of the good side and the bad side. Uh, and of course, a lot of that is because the people who vote most consistently in this country are the most economically secure. They're, they're the ones who are most likely to be... Uh, uh, to feel a genuine sense of delusional solidarity with capital rather than uh, an opposition to it. And that isn't going to change, I think. In any, if, uh, I don't think there's any reason to assume that that is a, is a dynamic that can be interrupted from within a political uh, dynamic where these people are all self-identified consumers. Uh, they, 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 they 
they know what they like. Like they define themselves by what they like. And there's no real way to get around that. Uh, what the challenge is, how are you going to get it to people who are tuned out, who have made the rational decision to ignore politics because they don't get anything out of it. They don't get a delusional sense that they are uh, impacting their lives and because they, they, uh, they can't afford those illusions in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying. I uh, Obviously, the only thing that we have in the current moment to like hope, to cling on to hope for is that the Bernie campaign, despite the two losses, could have set processes in motion that can in the long term or medium term or whatever like hopefully there's there's like a ball rolling now that we can like continue the momentum of and you know establish a foothold here and there because like it i'm repeating things i've said on this podcast in the past but like it's it's sure it's better to have a you know like a toehold in politics for something substantive than where we were you know six seven years ago i at least feel a little more hope than i did uh six or seven years ago despite the fact that everything you just mentioned is true like there there's there is more hope now than there was just a couple years ago certainly more hope than there than there was uh reading this period from 76 to 80 where like again there's just like there there's there's all kinds of potential there for some kind of different politics and it's just all completely squandered yeah no i would agree that we are that i mean the fact that bernie the fact of the bernie campaign and what it did in 2016 to just change the way people conceived of politics that was that was a quantum leap and what we've been dealing with is sort of the failure for uh, this process to happen on a time frame that can satisfy our desire to imagine our effectiveness in the world. Like we all want to think that we uh, could be there to see the promised land or that we can uh, imagine a way that our efforts are going to be directly efficacious. Uh, and I think what we've learned in the last few years is that uh, things are actually uh, going to be harder than a lot of people assumed. Uh, certainly people had convinced themselves I know myself included. Uh, and so it's a process of reconnecting and, and, and reassessing our relationship to these things. Uh, but, and I think that is why a lot of people are tempted to just become very bitter uh, and decide to point fingers or decide that the whole thing was doomed from the beginning or that, yeah, we're in a worse position than we used to be, even though it's clear we're not. Uh, if only because you know things have gotten worse, and that means people have become more disillusioned. I mean, that's a that's going to continue to happen. And now there's a framework for under for uh, mobilizing it into politics. But we we just have to accept that we don't know exactly how long this is going to take, uh, or where what we're going to be when it happens. But that uh, that's really the only uh, way forward. A big part of this book, as we've already discussed, is the emergence of the new right as this central player in American politics. And that story has to do with like like this book is the culmination of of what's been happening since Goldwater, what happens in the other three Pearlstein books, which is like they finally are ascendant. They finally captured the White House. And so in that sense, you you get the feeling that it is the right that has the momentum in this period, that the momentum that they finally in Reagan land ride into uh, the White House. And that is obviously something that feels very different 
today, right? Like the right is still in power in many ways, uh, even when, even where they don't hold elected office, right? Like it's obviously the right that's in power and that is often dictating the terms of our political discussion. But there's certainly no right-wing project that feels like it is uh, emerging and is fresh and has energy and is promising something to the American people that is compelling. Um, I mean, like today we just have, you know, like, like Trumpism can, I think some people uh, underestimate, you know, the, the mileage that the, the right can get out of Trump style politics, especially in the absence of a, of a substantive left-wing alternative, like, you know, people say stuff today about like, oh, the right is exhausted and I, and, and it's, it's going nowhere. And I think of like the future Rick Perlstein style books where the historian will quote all these idiots who keep saying that, uh, oh, well, after Trump lost, everybody thought that the Republicans were done or whatever. Um, so I, I think that, that that's not a guarantee, but like, you know, people like Corey Robin make the argument consistently, like that, like this is a a, a political, uh, ideological, uh, you know, movement that f- does feel pretty spent at this point. They have many opportunities to cling to power through all of the different avenues in the American political system that allow a, a, a tiny minority to block progress on any front, but like. That, that is this key difference between the, the period that's covered in this book and today is that like the right, despite holding lots of power at all levels of, of American politics, doesn't really feel ascendant in the same way. Would you agree with that? Uh, it's not ascendant because, yeah, it's at a period of decadence now. But I think that and I think that Trumpism is the decadent form of this. But I think we are in a period of decadence now. Uh, I don't think that there really needs to be a coordinated or uh, energetic project. I think there just needs to be existing uh, cultural spheres of grievance that bid each other up, that that are self-generating, that don't require uh, uh, a elite, that that can be just sort of transmitted th- uh, automatically, like like a twitching muscle fabric. Uh, as uh, people react to every day's, uh, you know, cultural red flag. I mean, the, Rick Perlstein goes through a bunch of big ticket uh, grievances that powered the right wing mo- mobilization of the 70s. Things that people don't even remember anymore, like the ERA or the fucking Panama Canal Treaty. Yeah, that that section of the book is wild. The way that the new right uses Panama, the Panama Canal, which should be a pretty. I mean, if I had lived at that time, I would have thought, okay, this will not be a big deal to get this thing done to give the Panama Canal back to Panama. But the new right gets so much mileage out of that. So it's for years, and it's amazing. And then Reagan gets in power, and he doesn't give a shit about the fucking Panama Canal. Uh, <laughs> uh, Newt Gingrich got his made his bones campaigning against the Panama Canal. He doesn't. You don't see him on Instagram saying "Get the canal back." But you. That but one of these things would last for a year. Now there's a new one every day, and there is this technological dissemination matrix that allows for people to get just stimmed up every single day off of this stuff. And I think that that fills in for the lack of there being a a vital movement generating anything. Yeah. And in thinking about what you just described, this this emergence of a new 
a new version of this kind of scandal every like half an hour or whatever in America. Um, that you know, lived experience of the present, as well as reading about the origins of that style of politicking, like how the new right really honed that to a craft and got really good at getting a million miles out of every little uh, cultural grievance like that. I, I mean, I, I just gave my case for, you know, why we should be slightly optimistic, but about our, the potential for a new kind of politics in America, but reading about that in Reagan land and seeing our own never ending culture wars uh does in my in my darker hours leave me uh wondering if it's just too strong a stuff like it's too appealing to too many people and i i just feel like it's it's the kind of thing that's almost impossible for us to defeat like i think we have a compelling program certainly at a time of like record domestic inequality and you know misery at home and you know there is there is some like we don't have people you know chomping at the bit for new wars overseas there's still a sense of exhaustion from iraq and afghanistan but like it it just seems like some of that cultural stuff is just too compelling to people and the right is so it's it is the it is the it, it's the, the lion's share of what they do politically at this point and in my, yeah in my darker hours i'm like i'm not sure we're ever going to be able to overcome this oh i don't think we're going to be able to overcome it in the uh in the world of politics as we understand it specifically the electoral realm in in the the way that it was done by the republicans basically by taking over the the by, or by the conservatives taking over the Republican Party from the grassroots and then directing it towards its aims. I just don't think that that is on, on the, in the cards at all, uh, which is why I think that you can't look at these books as a how-to. Uh, what, if the hope we have, and I think we do have hope, is, it, is that a movement emerges out of struggle itself, not out of engagement with politics, because I just feel it is too culturally saturated it is entertainment. It is identity. It is not anything that can uh, be penetrated by appeals to material interests because people filter the concept of material interests through these cultural uh, shibboleths and, and identity formations. Uh, it's going to be people who are struggling in actual uh, organizing uh, where they build a political awareness from experience and not from identity. And that's going to be labor. That's going to be uh, the, the the drive towards uh, 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 mobilizing and organizing labor against this hyper uh, proletarianization that's happening. Listeners of this podcast will not be shocked to hear that uh, once again the answers to our problems are uh, revitalize the labor movement. Yeah, go go uh, organize a union with your coworkers or, or get involved with your union. That That's the uh, that's what's going to take us out of Reagan land if we're ever going to leave. It really is. It's like uh, it, it's hard to talk, talk about it because it's you end up sounding like a broken record. But uh, it, it really is the only the only hope we have. Well, we have uh, talked for almost an hour about this book, and we've really only skimmed the surface of uh, much of it. It's uh, it's a thick book; it's like a thousand pages, uh, but it is the the coda to Rick Perlstein's tetralogy of the emergence of the new right. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping to have uh, Rick on this podcast at some point to to go into some depth about uh, what his own you know, comparing his own politics to uh, the politics that he is describing, you know, emerging in the uh, in the 60s and, and 70s. Um, but 
even if, if we don't ever get to that, I would say that Pearlstein's four books are pretty indispensable reading for uh, people. Not, not because he's a socialist, because he is—he definitely is not. He's a liberal, uh, but he he chronicles this period in uh, this sort of uh, history of American politics and culture in ways that are pretty indispensable for understanding where we are right now, and uh, hopefully in thinking through how we're going to get out of this morass. Absolutely. All right, Matt. Thanks a lot. Thank you. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd. You can always reach out to us at vastmajoritypodcast at gmail.com. And please, if you are not already subscribed to Jacobin, subscribe to our print issue, or you can get an online version at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe. <laughs>